Lord, we just come before you and we ask that you guide and lead us as we look at this chapter and that you will let us see what you would have us to see. And we thank you for your protection, your, your guidance, Lord, and for all that you've done for us. We bless that each individual that's here and that you will touch each life. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 6, starting at verse 1. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them and say, You mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and to the hills and to the rivers and to the valleys, Behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you and will destroy your high places. And your altars shall be desolate and your images shall be broken. And I will cast down your slain men before your idols. And I will lay the dead carcasses of the children of Israel before their idols. And I will scatter your bones around about your altars in all your dwelling places, the cities shall be laid waste, and the high places shall be desolate, and your altars, that your altars may be laid waste and made desolate. And your idols may be broken and cease, and your images be cut down, and your works be, may be abolished. And the slain shall fall in the midst of you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. We're going to stop there. So we're continuing here about the judgment of Israel the prophecies of this and God says to Ezekiel son of man and we've talked about this being the the term that Ezekiel takes from God talking to him the son of man it says set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them he's saying direct your face look toward the mountains the mountains of Israel pretty much means where Jerusalem sits, because Jerusalem sits on one of the highest mountains in, 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 in Israel. And when they talk about looking, at the, looking toward the mountain, talking about Mount Zion usually, looking that direction. But he says, look toward the mountain of Israel, set your face toward the, the high places and prophesy against Israel, against what's going on. And he says, what is he supposed to say? You mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. And that word, just as we've said many, most of the time when we read the word hear in the scriptures, it is that idea of hear and obey. It's not just literally hear, but he says you're to hear with the purpose of obeying what you hear. And we know what that can mean. How many times have you heard something, but you have no intention of obeying it? You have no intention of really listening to to say even will I do this or not you just hear and so those times when you hear something it goes in one ear and out the other and you sat you you've sat there and you've listened and you get to the end and you go you have no idea what you've just listened to and sometimes it will do this when uh, we know that we're going to disagree with the person that's speaking we may just tune them out Technically, we've heard them. We probably could repeat a few of their words, but we really haven't heard them because we had no intention of hearing them. I was just getting ready to say, oftentimes spouses will do that to one another. You know, rather than get mad at what they're saying, they're going, they just kind of, they're listening for maybe a key word or two to say, do, am I supposed to say yes or okay or nod your head at the right time or not. You've got that whole process of, there's oftentimes that we will do this. 
God, when he speaks in the scripture, he's not asking us to hear in that way. He's saying, I want you to hear with the intention of obeying. One of the things I have found very amazing as I've been teaching through the word of God is how many times God repeats himself in all these books. Sometimes I'm looking at this stuff and I go, didn't I just preach this? You know, these words a little while ago, and sometimes it's repeated in the same book, sometimes it's repeated from book to book. But God understands that we as humans have a hard time hearing even his voice. And he keeps repeating himself all through scriptures and repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats. And isn't it great to know that God understands that we need to have that repetition? He could be up there just saying, well, I told you once and you disobeyed. I'm not telling you again. And he would have every right to. He's God. He wrote it down. We should be paying attention to what he says. And yet he knows that we don't always listen that way. We need that repetition. And we keep getting that repetition. And we go through over and over and over again. And the funny thing is, sometimes we finally hear it after the third or fourth time. And we, after the third or fourth time, we finally hear it. And it's like the first time we've heard it. And this is true, and this is why I understand when I preach and I say the same things over and over and over again. And it's really funny. I've said it, I've said it a dozen times, and somebody goes, wow, that was so impressive. You, know, you said this. And I'm going, oh, that's good. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, well, it's only about the hundredth time I've said it in four years. But, but by the same token, I'm happy that somebody finally heard it. God does the same thing with us. <laughs> All through Scripture... He says the same thing over and over and over again. Now, the hard part is, once you've heard it, it's like, okay, would you quit talking about it? Let's move, let's move to the next thing. But God, at the same time, is we need that repetition to drive it home into our minds. You know, God loves us. Do we really fully understand what that means, that God loves us? You know, how much does he love us? Loves us so much that he sent Jesus, his son, to die for us. To suffer for 33, 34 years of, on this earth. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be God and be stuck in a human body and have set your, all, most of your power aside? You still have power, but you, you're not holding all the power. You're not omnipotent, you know, fully omnipotent in everything you do. You're, you're locked into time and space when you're used to being outside of time and space. This was quite a place for Jesus to be. And he then died and was separated from the Father. That's love. And we need to grab hold of how much he loves us. I tell people God loves you, and you know, especially if they're not saved, well, no, God wouldn't love me. Then you go, well, why not? Well, because I'm so bad a sinner. Do you know what? All of us are sinners. And we share with them the love of God. We really want to start understanding who God is. How does God see us? He doesn't see us as terrible sinners. He sees those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior as saints, as his children. As we talked about the other day when we were, I can't remember which one we were in, as his peculiar people, his treasure. His prized pro treasure, he is how he looks at us. He is not looking down on us and saying, well, 
you know, well, I'm just going to uh, accept them. No, he loves us and says we're his. Very important that how much do we know about God and how much do we truly believe about him. Because the more we understand who God is, how he sees us, the more we're going to walk closer to him, the more we're going to desire to hear him. Our pleasure should be in God. Our pleasure should be in hearing his word. Our pleasure should be in seeking his desires. I can't wait to get with God's people and share his word with people. I love it. I love every minute of this. And I would love to be doing more of it. (laughs) But I can't do it with my schedule right now. But I love spending as much time as I can with God's people and sharing his word and helping people get to know God better. And this is the one thing I love by being able to teach and watching people grow is to see the lights go on and say, wow, this is true. I love it when that happens. I love it when I see people responding back and and giving me the testimony of how they're growing because it is wonderful. And I was listening to one of the preachers this morning and he says, if somebody is truly a pastor, they, they... live and die by, by the experiences of their people. When people aren't listening and making bad decisions, it hurts. Because you love, your, you love the people in the, in the flock of your church. And I understood what he was saying because it is true. When you see somebody make mistakes, especially right after you've preached it, <laughs> and they make the mistake and it's like, oh, well, they didn't listen. Okay, God, let's try this. <laughs> let's, let's do this, get this better next time. And then you see the successes and it's like, wow, this is great. It's just like watching a family grow. When you see your kids grow and develop and, and make good decisions or make bad decisions <laughs> and, you're, and you hurt for the children as they make bad decisions and you celebrate their good decisions. The same thing for, for here. You know, being able to share his word over and over again. It's not a burden to me at all. It's, it's, it's a pleasure to be able to watch it and God change lives. And Ezekiel is prophesying against Israel at this time. Israel is in idolatry and, and all of this stuff right now. And he's saying, God's coming against you. And God's come, going to judge. And this, he says, you know, and then we continue in this verse. He says, to the mountains and to the hills, to the rivers and to the valleys, behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you and will destroy your high places. When God judges a nation, the sword is what he uses to bring it. He'll take them down. We've seen it all through, all through history. Israel was sent into captivity by being conquered. Now, was every single person bad in Israel? No, God is always has a remnant. This is something that I'm concerned about for America. So many people are following sin in America, turning against God. There is a remnant of good, strong Christians and good, strong churches in America. We will have to pay just as the rest of the people did, just as they did in Israel when God destroyed the nation and and sent it into captivity. Many good and righteous people were hurt in the same process. And we need to be ready because the end is coming in this world. How soon? I don't know. I think it's sooner, much sooner than later. I don't think we have 100 to 200 years. You know, it could still be that far off. 
And believe me, I know, because everybody will always say, well, the first century church thought Jesus was coming in their day, and that was 2,000 years ago, and you're right, that it was 2,000 years ago that they were saying he's coming any day. But we look at Scripture, we look at Daniel, we look at, at Revelation, we look at, at these verses and say, we are close to the end. How close is close? I don't know. We definitely don't have a millennial left. That's, I would say there's no way we have the thousand years. Could it be as little as a hundred? I think it's awfully long, but it's possible. Could it be any time now? Absolutely. And one of the statements that I learned when I was younger is we need to live like Jesus is coming tonight and plan as if he's not coming in our lifetime. We're going to plan in this church to minister and to do outreach and to win the lost as if he's not coming in this lifetime and this church will have another 125 years to, to minister. Do I expect it to be that long? No, I don't expect it to be that long. We're watching the world accept sin. We're watching our country accept sin as normal. And as long as it's going to accept sin as normal, that takes us into the days of Noah when everyone did what was right in their own eyes and every imagination of man was evil. We're not very far from that. Now, how much more evil does it have to get? I don't know. Can we have another revival? Yes, we could. If, the, if God's people get down on their knees and pray and, and pray like Daniel did, you know, Daniel was an amazing prayer that he did in, in Daniel 9 where he admits the sins of his people, but he uses the word I and we, I think it was 36 times in that prayer. And Daniel was a very righteous man, so righteous that his enemies couldn't find anything against him when they searched out his life. And yet when he's praying for his people, he's putting himself right in the middle of all of their sin and saying I and we. As the church, we need to get down on our knees and admit that we are as guilty as the rest of the world. And, and, the, and, our, and our country, if we're going to see, see revival. Now, I don't really expect another great revival, but I think there will be small revivals all over this country. I do know that I've listened to preachers who think that America's not mentioned in the Bible because they have a great big revival and, and most everybody gets raptured. I'm not going to go that far. I don't believe it. But it was interesting when, I, when I've heard that from them. Uh, but I believe there will be some revivals. There will be some strong churches that are, that are preaching the gospel, and we're going to see pockets of revival in this country and the world because God always has a remnant of people that worship him. Always. Even in Revelation, when the Antichrist is in charge and the tribulation period is going to go on, he will have a remnant of people he starts with 144,000 Jewish evangelists as part of that group. And how many others? Who knows? But they are going to be the, a remnant of people in the middle of the tribulation preaching the gospel. He always has a remnant of people. Through the dark ages when the Christianity was being destroyed, but through the Catholic Church getting away from the scriptures, there was a remnant of people holding on to the scriptures and holding on to salvation by faith alone. Then the, we had the Protestant movement happening and started in the Catholic Church 
Many priests in the Catholic Church started preaching the gospel. Luther was the first one to break through, and actually at the same time that God was bringing out the word in, in a, a big move in the Protestant churches, we see the whole other, the revival of the Christi, Christian movement going on. Oh, Reformation. Reformation. But there's always been a remnant. All through the Jews' history, there was a remnant that followed God even when the country would follow after idols, there'd be a remnant that followed after God. This is something we need to be aware of, and it's going to get worse in our near future. We have whole denominations that aren't believing the word of God anymore, that will accept sin and have no problem with it. Many of the megachurches, not all of them, but many of the megachurches are watering down the gospel of Christ so they cannot offend the people, the huge crowds that they draw. They won't call things sin. They won't call, you know, they won't say that we need to be saved. Many of them don't even believe in heaven or hell. They're almost like the Sadducees in, in Jesus' day that you know, were religious leaders but didn't believe in religious things. <laughs> so we need to be careful. We need to hold on to his word. We need to be part of the remnant of Christ and his body. And as things get worse, there will be a time in this country where we cannot meet like this in the open. We'll have to come together, park a car, and walk, you know, walk a half mile or so to get to somebody's house, and then everybody comes, comes together uh, independently and slowly and leaves the same way. It's not too far in the future, I believe. I, I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think I am because this has been forecast by many, many teachers because we're so close to the end where Christianity will be outlawed. And I've already shared with you, ever since I was a teenager, I believed that I would go to jail for my Christian beliefs and I never expected to be in a foreign country in jail. I always thought it would be in America. Now I'm seeing how it could happen pretty quick and easy because I'm calling sin, sin. And there's a lot of political correctness stuff that I'm violating because I'm calling sin, sin. And not willing to bend what God says. So there will be a day, and, and we're on, as you know, we're, we put it on the internet, so there's no denying that I said it, which I wouldn't anyway, but there's absolutely no denying that, that I have said what I've said. And I wouldn't want to anyway, because I'm not going to deny Jesus. And this is going to happen. And I've already encouraged the church, if and when I get arrested, go find another pastor who's going to stand on the Bible. Because it would be important to find somebody who's going to say the Bible is absolutely correct. Because if you don't, you're wasting your time. But we need to look at this. He said the sword's going to fall upon you and he will destroy the high places. And we've talked about the high places the high places were the tops of mountains, and for some reason, that's where they build the temples and the altars to other gods. And if you go into to Greece and anywhere in that area in the Mediterranean, you're going to find the temples were on the top of the hills of the cities, looking down over the, over the cities, and that happened even in Israel. The temple of God was built in Jerusalem, one of the high spots. And with all that gold, it's shown, it shown out really brightly from anywhere you know, that you could see it. But all the other smaller hills that they had, especially when they were in idolatry, they'd build altars and temples to these other gods. 
And this is why when you read high places in the Old Testament, they're talking about idol worship. Okay? And then it says in verse 4, And your altar shall be des desolate, and your images shall be broken down, and I will cast down your slain men before your idols. So he's talking here the altars will be desecrated. How did they desecrate the altars? They would tear them apart after they burned something on it that was not allowed to be burnt on the altars. Uh, when the Romans came in to destroy the temple in Jerusalem, the first thing they did was they sacrificed a pig on the altar and then they took the blood of the pig and spread it all over the temple to desecrate the temple because pork was not allowed to be offered in that, in that temple. And then they destroyed the temple. And many times what it meant to, to desecrate these things was to, to burn, basically burn their prophets, uh, their, their priests on their altar or take dead bones and you know, burn them on the, on the altar, which was a desecration of the altar. And then they'd tear down the altar. And those rocks would never again be able to be used for, for altars. But they desecrated it. They tried to make it so that it, nothing on it was going to be holy or, or right for their worship. And so he says, you, your altars will be desecrated then cast down. And then it says, I will cast down your slain men before your altars. They were going to be cast before, before, your before your idols, the altars. Uh, you had an altar in front of the idol. It, the word literally is altar, but it's in the idea is the place of your worship. Because the way they would design most temples where you'd have your big idol and then you'd have your altars in front of the idol. Uh, even in the Jewish tabernacle, if you remember when we studied the tabernacle, you had the, the holy place and the holy of holies and you had the tabernacle, the, the altar outside the, ho the holy place but inside the tent of the tabernacle. If you remember how that was designed. You walked inside the, the outer tent uh, walls and you came to the tables to slay the animals and then the altar. How was it in the old days? Did uh, all the Israelites 100% somehow participate in religion or was it like nowadays where a lot of people don't go to church? How old do we want to go back? Because <laughs> uh, you can go all the way back into the days of Moses. When Moses, before the tabernacle was built up, would go to the tent of, of the congregation, there was one particular one where he's coming down the road and people were coming to the doors but not, but not participating. So there has always been in Israel and everywhere else the remnant that worship and the remnant that are just religious to whatever degree. Uh, in America, we built our country with religious principles and, and, and morals, but not everybody in America was a Christian. They might have read their Bible. They were taught to read with the, with the New England primer, which was the very much in the Bible and had the had the doctrines and everything listed in the back of it, and that's how they learned, to mem learned their alphabet, was to associate it with biblical stories, and they learned all the principles and the doctrines of the church through the New England primer. Does that mean that every single person 
was a Christian? No, they were just basically moral people that were living good by man's standards. Uh, and this has been true all through scriptures. In Jesus' day, we know that many of them were not uh, quote-unquote religious. We know the Sadducees, which were a very strong group in their, in their religious setup, didn't even believe in spiritual things, didn't believe in angels, didn't believe in resurrection, didn't believe in, in heaven and hell. And yet they were religious leaders. And so this has been true all through history that there's only a remnant of people who have ever truly believed in God. And we see this all through this. And this is one of the reasons Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. And he said, in that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't die. And he will say, department from me, I never knew you. Because so many people equate goodness and quote-unquote righteous living to being God's child. And, G and God says, no, it is those who have fully accepted you know, Christ and his work. I guess what I'm getting at is there had to be a certain number, a certain number who uh, didn't go to temple, didn't observe the feast days, that they were just out of the loop, 100%. If you go through the, again, if you go through the scriptures and the, and the uh, uh, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, you're going to find many times where practically nobody went to temple. Okay. Hezekiah, when he came to power, spent, I think it was a month, cleaning the temple because it had become a junkyard. Okay. They were putting their waste materials in the temple. So for several kings before him, they weren't. nobody was going to the temple, obviously, because otherwise it would not have become this junkyard of, of garbage and, and they say actually refuse. So I don't know how bad that means, how bad that means, uh, how far they went down the refuse line. Basically they had desecrated it and ruined it. But there was a, oh, there's always been a remnant. They couldn't have gone, they couldn't go to the temple and, and offer their sacrifices, but they were following God to the best they could without a temple to, to go sacrifice to. Yes, it's, there's nothing really different about the Jewish religion than Christianity as far as that goes. Because there are churches in America that are supposedly Christian churches that you would not really recognize that are Christian churches because the message is not, the salvation message is not preached in that. And they're becoming whole denominations where that's becoming the norm rather than the Christian message. And this is something we have to be careful of. And this is why when somebody goes... You know, I'm looking for a good church. I actually, when I have a person ask me about, you know, where, what is a good church in my area, I will go to the websites in that area and listen to some of their pastor's messages to, before I'll recommend them. And I know the denominations to go to first to look for a decent one, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to find a good church. This is a Southern Baptist church, but not every Southern Baptist church even preaches the gospel of Christ anymore. The majority do. It's still a very strong denomination, but there are some out there that don't. I listen to Calvary Chapel's preachers a lot, and I could almost guarantee you there's probably a Calvary Chapel or two out there that is not <laughs> a strong follower of the word of God. Now, it's a smaller group. It's probably less likely <laughs> than some of the big denominations. But 
you can't just say this denomination is always good or always bad. Uh, there's certain, you know, there's certain denominations that have really watered down the gospel, but even with them, there's a few of them that still end up with a pastor who cares about the Word of God and teaches the Word of God. So we want to be very careful. We don't, we don't ever want to blanket everybody, okay? The, the Catholic Church has had some problems throughout its history, but you know, I've heard some very good priests in the Catholic Church that are very godly men who preach God's Word. Now, they're a little far and few between in, in many cases, but there are some really good Catholic priests that preach the Word of God. And it's been amazing when you, when you listen to some of these guys and, and they give you these great messages. So we don't ever want to say everybody is wrong because nobody is, no, nowhere is it everybody wrong or nowhere is it everybody good. There are certain that are more likely to be good than, than others and there's more likely to be bad than, than others. But we still keep going because God has a remnant. He always will have a remnant to lift his name up. And Judaism had that same, same issue. Even in the days of the judges where it went cycles between corruption and bad and punishment, there were still those who were following God as best they could in the, in the situation that they were in. Could they go to the temple and, you know, the tabernacle and offer sacrifices when everything was bad? Probably not. Uh, there's times in the scriptures where it says that the Levites were not coming to the temple either because nobody was, there, nobody was coming to the temple, nobody was giving things. So they went to their cities and grew their own food and, and everything because they weren't being supported by the people. And that was how they were supposed to get their, their living. They were supposed to go to the temple and get their share of the tithes and offerings that were coming in and come back, you know, and if you remember in, in uh, uh, Leviticus, the way that they got paid is the tithes and offerings went to the Levites. The Levites then gave a tenth of everything they had to the priest, and the, and the priest gave a tenth of what they got to the, to the high priest. So the high priest got the best of the best because they were always supposed to tithe the best, and the people were supposed to be tithing the best. So that was how the system was supposed to work. And when they wouldn't go to the, tabernacle, uh, the temple or the tabernacle, then the, pre the Levites would start starving and they would go back home and, and plant their little plots of ground and, and live the best they could with the little bit of land that they had been given to live on. But God always had a remnant. Always. When Elijah complained that he was the only one that hadn't bent his knee to, to, to Baal, God says, no, I got 5,000. Go, go do what I told you to do. You know, you worry about you and I, I will worry about my people. And when we start getting into this place where we have a pity party, thinking we're the only one serving God, we need to remember God takes care of himself and he's got plenty of people to take care of himself, you know, take care of him. He doesn't, matter of fact, he doesn't need us. We all, he gives us the, the pleasure to serve him. It's not that he needs us. Revelation is a great example where we see the angel flying around the earth proclaiming the gospel of the gospel. You know, he doesn't need us. He lets us have the pleasure of serving him. And this is something we need to get into our heads that we're being allowed to serve God. And this is something that's important for us to, to really grab hold of because we're really not that important. The, you know, we get used. 
And some people will say they're glad that I'm here and I've been teaching. But you know, God would have, could have brought anybody up here to be that teacher. I just had the privilege of being the one that's here. It could have been anybody that he brought up here at the right time, at the right place, with the right message. And when I'm gone, he'll put another person in here to be the right person at that time and place to bring the gospel message into this church. But while I'm here, I'm going to take the pleasure of God giving me that opportunity. And we need to be able to understand God is his defend. Here he's saying, I am going to bring the sword in. I am going to destroy these temples. You know, not, not the individuals, but he said, I'm going to do it. Now he uses individuals, but it's him that brings the work out. Verse 5 says, And I will lay the dead carcasses of the children of Israel before their idols, and I will scatter your bones around about your idols. So again, God's saying, you, you've chosen other gods. We'll just let you be laid, laid to rest before your gods. Your, your, your bones, your carcasses, you're going to be lay, laying before those altars. And verse 6, And all your dwellings of your cities shall be laid to rest, and the high places shall be desolate, and your altars may be laid to rest and made desolate, and your idols may be broken and cease, and your images may be cut down, and your works be abolished. So again, he's talking about now the cities. He's going to judge the cities as well. Why? Because as a group of people, they were rejecting God. And he says, I'm going to even take away the cities. Your cities are going to be destroyed. And this is a big deal. A big deal for them. And he says, they should be laid waste. Totally destroyed. Nothing living in them anymore when they're laid waste. They're going to become overgrown. They're going to be in, in dwelling in other places. Other places, he says, they're going to be the dwelling places of the ant, wild animals. And, and this is, we see this. If you, uh, if you think about, like, say, South America, where the Aztec civilization died with all those mighty uh, cities that they had. And there's times where they come through the jungles and all of a sudden they come upon a city that's broken down now and, and overgrown, and, but it's obviously obvious that it was a city, and it's become a home to the animals, and the forest has overtaken it. This can happen anywhere. The, and it's amazing how nature takes care of itself and re, re, reconquers everything. Uh, if you go into older cities, you know, we look around some of these cities that uh, sprung up on the, even on our west coast. Uh, and during the mining days and everything, and then they got abandoned. Sometimes these places are totally overrun and, and destroyed, you know, with animals and vegetation, if there's enough, enough uh, rain to get vegetation. But our earth, the way God has balanced the earth, it takes care of itself and reclaims, and reclaims the, the things when it's not being tended to. And he says, your high places will be destroyed, your altars will be made waste, your idols will be broken and ceased, and your images will be cut down. And again, we've talked about the images because they, many of those worship places would create these, these groves of trees around a center totem pole that was, was carved and, and made into usually, usually the groves had to do with the sex gods and goddesses. And they were very 
exaggerated sexual organs on these totem poles and, and they would have orgies in the middle of these groves. And this is what he's saying, those totem poles are going to be cut down. So when you talk about high places or on the mountains and then the gro- when he talks about cutting down our groves, he's talking about these totem poles that were all over the place that were to be cut down and destroyed. Which brings out the seriousness of what he talks about. When God repeats something, he's very serious about it. And we see a lot of this in the prophecies and everything. I'm going to do this. By the way, I'm going to do this. By the way, I'm really going to do this. And there's a, there's a teaching in how to interpret scripture that if God says it once, you pay attention. If he says it a second time, you really should pay attention. But if he says it a third time, he is serious about what he's saying. And it's pretty critical that we pay attention to these things when we start seeing these repeated teachings. The whole Bible is a, is a, a complete book. And God repeats many things in the, in, the, in the book. And one of the things you have to be careful of is if you're trying to believe something, you only have one verse to support it. You're on kind of dangerous ground to use that as a, as a place to live on. You find something supported in the Bible two times, three times, you're, you're pretty solid to make a teaching out. You find something that's taught hundreds of places, like salvation, like the judgment of God, then you were able to say this is something God is absolutely trying to grab attention to. And we want to remember this is a whole book. It's written by 40 different human authors. But the unity of this book is amazing, and it has a story from beginning to end of redemption and, and salvation through Jesus Christ. From the very beginning, we have the very first prophecy of the coming of Jesus in Genesis. We see the prophecy of man's rule and everything in Genesis. We see marriage starting in Genesis, and then we see it all the way through. And marriage is ultimately the picture of Jesus with his bride, the church, for eternity. And God established it in the picture of marriage from the very beginning. He talked about how blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of sin by the shedding of the, the animals that created the skin, skins that clothed Adam and Eve after their sin. The, the penalty for sin is death, shown in Genesis, and expounded upon all the way through scriptures with more and more revelation being, being given to us with each passing century that the Bible talks about. And we see the depth of his truth, and then it comes to its full conclusion by the book of Revelation. But it's all a great picture of Jesus from beginning to end. And we need to be able to see these pictures. As we see here, he's going to come, he's going to destroy. Why is he destroying? Because he wants purity. Even in our lives, he destroys the sin in our life through the tests that he gives us to work it out of our lives. And it's the same picture, just in a much smaller place. He puts us through things to say, do you truly believe? Are you ready to get rid of the sin? You're living such a sinful life, I'm going to put you down to the bottom so that you'll come turn to me. God's whole plan always is to get people to turn to him in all areas of their life including our lives. If we want to sin in a certain area, God's going to expose it. 
And that's what he tells us. If we don't confess our sin before him and turn away from it voluntarily, he will test and punish that sin and bring it out to the open. And several places he talks about our sins being shouted from the, the t- rooftops. David, with his sin with Bathsheba, God, the part of the judgment was that his wives would be violated in, in openness before Israel. Absalom, his son, rebelled against him, took the wives on, to the high room or the rooftop of the te- of the or his concubines of the of the palace and had sex with them on the roof on the rooftop in front of all of Israel. Now, whether they were in a tent or in the open, it doesn't really make very clear. But it became obvious that he had violated David's concubines, and the Bible tells us about that, because David did what, did it in secret. It was proclaimed in 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 the open. And this happens over and over with God's people. He does not let his people get away with sin. And we've seen this in many cases. Many, there's been many evangelists who thought they were getting away with sin and God proclaimed it to the world, their, their sin. Made them look bad, made them in some ways even made Christianity look bad. But God said, I'm not going to let you get away with the sin. We cannot think that we're going to get away with it because God knows our sin. He knows our secret sins. He knows our thoughts. He knows those things that we do that we think nobody else knows because he's omnipresent. He knows it. And he will convict us. And if we do not repent from our sin, he will open that sin up to people to see. Now, for the most people... It just means maybe their church will get to know it you know, on it. For some people who are higher up, like these televangelists who think they're getting away with it, he opens it up to the whole world because they have influence over a lot more people. The more influence you have, the more you're trying to you know, make people think you're doing good, the more people will know about your sin. Uh, beyond that, it could be a very small group. For some people, it might just be two or three people that learn about their sin. But that's still just as embarrassing to them as if the whole world, well, in their life, it's just as bad. But God says he's going to punish. We're his children. He's going to punish us to bring us to him. And punishment involves pain. It does. If it doesn't cause pain, there's not any punishment in it, is there? This is, this is where when, when uh, parents will spank their kid and they're going, it's going to hurt, hurt me more than it hurts you. But it does hurt the child as well. And, and it needs to be pain in there so that you associate wrongdoing with pain. Our, our current way of trying to discipline kids where there's no pain, you've got to just make them feel bad about it. Well, that doesn't really work. And it's part of the problem we have in the prisons and jail system. We're trying to send people there just to rehabilitate them. And there's no real pain involved in it to keep them from coming back. And discipline involves pain. To say, this was more than I, the pain is more than I want to pay for what I did wrong. And if there's not enough pain, then people keep wanting to do it because the pleasure doesn't outweigh the pain. 
And this is something that God makes sure that we have, that the pain that we feel for disobedience will definitely outweigh whatever pleasure we think we're getting from the sin. Because he's the master of discipline. And we sometimes think, well, gee, God, you're just a little bit too harsh on this person. Well, he's as harsh as he needs to be for that person. And I've seen many people where I look at it and go, boy, you know, God, you were really harsh on that person. But at the back of my mind, I also know he knows just how harsh he needed to be for that person to pay attention to, if they'll pay attention. And we want to be very sensitive to this. We want to keep our accounts short with God and be able to confess. When he puts a, when he starts giving us conviction, we need to go before him and repent. And repent means to tell him, God, I am sorry for the sin that I have done. Not, do not use mistake. Do not you know, say I've slipped or fell. When we have sinned, we need to admit that it is a sin. At least to God. You know, we need to be able to admit, God, I have sinned. You say it's a sin. I'm going to agree with you that it's a sin. And I'm going to turn away from my sin and come back to you. Does that mean we won't fall again? Not necessarily, but we need to admit this is what confess means in, Hebrew, in Greek. It's homo logeo, to say the same thing as. If I'm saying, God, I made a mistake, I'm not calling it what God calls it. Was it a mistake? Yes, it was a mistake. But it was also sin. I have disobeyed God. Whether I fell into it, whether I made a real conscious decision to do it, Technically, everything is a conscious decision because we still know what we're doing. But I need to call it sin. And we've talked about this. What is the world trying to make all these different sins? Illnesses, weaknesses. It is just my characteristic. You know, this is just who I am. Uh, syndromes. You get somebody who, who has a bad temper and you'll, they'll say something, well, it's just my Irish temper coming out. No, it's sin. <laughs> we got to get to the place where we quit excusing sin, call it sin, and deal with it. Because if we're calling it a mistake, we're calling it our, just the way I am, or any other sickness, or whatever it might be, we're not agreeing with God, and we will not deal with it if we're excusing it. Because it's outside of my control. And this is what the world wants us to believe. Conviction is supposed to drive us to confession and repentance. Satan wants to condemn us. And when we feel condemned, then we want to walk away from God. Instead of turning to him, we try to go away from him because we're feeling condemned. It's funny because it's the same idea when, when somebody is driving down the highway and they see a police car. This irritates the daylights out of me. They see a police car and they immediately go, in for, go from three or four miles over the speed limit down to five miles under the speed limit. And it's like, okay, they weren't going to stop you at the first place, but why go below the legal limit? Because they are feeling condemned. They know how many times they should have gotten a ticket and they, get, they have this condemnation that says, I've got to be overly the other direction. We need to be very careful. And this is why we keep short accounts with God because we want that fellowship. We need that fellowship with him. We need to confess our sins and say, God, I, I am a sinner. I have done wrong. I'm coming back to you. And that's what totally re repentance means, to change my mind about what I am doing and turn back to God. 
And that's the important part of repentance is to turn back to God. I'm going one way and I turn around and come back to God. And this is the idea of the prodigal son. He's going the wrong way for a long time, using up all of his money, living in the gutter, and saying, boy, things were better for even my, my dad's servants live better than what I'm doing. And he changes his mind and decides to go back home. And I love, his, I love the speech. You remember his speech was, you know, God, your father, I, I have sinned against you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Make me a servant. And he didn't even get the words out. His turning back to him was all the father needed to see. When we come to God and we turn back to him, that's really what he wants to see. And he's going to reach out and reclothe us and reaccept us back into his family and, and give us back our, our place. But it takes that repentance. It takes that change of mind that I'm going to go back to God. How easy is it to turn away from God? So easy. We have our flesh that wants to turn away from him. We have our desires that want to turn away from him. We have the, the very lusts of the flesh that want to turn away from him. If we're not careful, it is easy to turn away from God and get wrapped up in sin. And any one of us can do that. No matter how strong we might think we are in some area, we might find ourselves being turned around even in our strongest area if we're not putting our faith in Christ. We need the body. We need the word of God. We need one another for that very purpose of keeping strong. Because if we isolate ourselves, we'll fail. We'll fall. And this is very important that we don't isolate ourselves from the body of Christ. That's what Hebrews says. Forsake not the assembling of yourself together and so much more as you see the day approaching. We need each other. We need the body of Christ. Because if you've ever played with a fire, and I, I used to love playing with fires, and you take, a, you take a red hot ember out of the middle of the fire with tongs and set it off to the side, it doesn't take long for that very red hot coal to die. And, and end up not being heated up. When it's all by itself on, the, on a far corner or a far rock, it will die. It's the same thing with us. You might be red hot for God, you know, burning for God, and you separate yourself from the Word of God, and you separate yourself from the body of Christ, and you'll go cold. Because your, your human nature will just take you away. And it is what happens all the time. We've seen it over and over with the, Jewish, with the Jewish faith. They would have a good, strong leader bringing everybody together, and the next thing you know, they would just start drifting apart. And the next, next thing you know, they're worshiping idols. We worship our idols just as much today as, as they did then. We don't have shrines and temples to them necessarily. But we all know that people have idols. Sometimes it could be sports. You know, they're so devoted to their sports that they, they give up everything else. Could be a hobby, could be work, could be those funny little boxes with lights that, it, you know, that we watch, sit in front of all day long watching and vegetating in front of. Could be almost anything that can be an idol in our day and age. We need each other. We need each other more than we realize we need each other. And I've said this over and over, I've watched over the years when somebody gets offended at church or gets into sin and doesn't want to confess, doesn't want to admit it, 
and you watch them kind of, the first thing is usually they'll stop being at church quite as much or they'll sit at the back of the church instead of the front of the church and before long they've worked their sums right out the door and you don't see them for months to years if somebody doesn't reach out to touch them. Which is why I've shared with people, if you see somebody who's been missing, reach out to them. Invite them. Say, you know, you know we've re- I've really missed you. I'd love to, you know, love to see you come back. And you never know. It may be just enough to bring somebody back when somebody just says, you know, we've missed you. We care for you. And something I've tried to do f- for many, many, many decades is to do that. When I see somebody that I've missed and stuff, I've reached out. And as a pastor, I do that. But most people, when the pastor calls them, they, lo- they, you know, they like the phone call. It's, worth, it's, it's better than nothing. But if the pastor does it, it's just doing their job. But I can tell you, for the body to call them, that touches people in a way that the pastor can't. You know, the pastor may be able to win them back with that, with that phone call. But when somebody else does it, that's somebody that they don't look at you know, doing their job. Uh, my wife and I went to visit this one couple because they hadn't been in church for a long time. And I was, they were assigned to me as, a, as, a, as one of my families as a deacon. We went to their house. And his first question was, there's nobody sick here. What are you doing here? And I go, well, I'm just here visiting all the people that, that are in my deacon families. And he goes, well, nobody's ever visited me from the church. And I go, well, I'm sorry about that. You know, come, you know, I'd love to see you come back to church. And they, were, they came back to church. We never know what might minister to somebody. A letter, a phone call, just seeing them say, hey, you know, we've, we've really missed you and love to see you come back to church. Because the personal touch from the body of Christ is what will win them. And I will, I will do my letters, I will do my, my messages, I will do the phone calls. But again, I'm not saying they're worthless, but you know, when people, when I call somebody, it's usually, well, the pastor's just doing his job of contacting me. You know, it's, it, and it, even though it's genuine and everything, it's just they consider it part of the job. And we want to be very careful that we reach out to people we love one another we don't want to criticize somebody when you well why haven't you been to church in the last uh, six months is not going to bring somebody back to church yeah but a loving hell you know we've missed you you know we'd love to love to see you come back and mean it (laughs) and mean it to get people to come back because it is important we need one another we need to be lifted up just as our body does not get rid of something that, you know, when, it, when there's a disease in the body, the, the body just doesn't say, okay, we're going to cut that part off. That, that finger is damaged, we're going to cut it off. No, the body sends extra blood over there, extra nutrients to it to try to get that healing done. We need to be that same way because we are a body of believers. And we need one another. We need to help one another. Not criticize, not tear down but to grow one another in a strong place because otherwise we face just what Israel's facing here, idols and destruction and judgment. And God will judge us as individuals and as a nation if it comes down to it. But he starts with individuals and he starts with his church because we are his people, we're his children. He's going to let the rest of the world do pretty much what they want to do because they're not his. But eventually he will judge us. Eventually he'll judge the nation. 
because of how bad it is and how far it's gotten. And there will come a time when he judges the world again. And probably not too far in, in the future. The church will be raptured, taken to heaven, and God's judgment will fall on this earth. And remember, the whole purpose of his judgment falling on this earth is not to destroy the earth, not to, not to, to punish them into extinction, but to bring them back to him. All of his judgment, all of his trials with us is to bring people back because he loves us. Okay? And when we read Revelation, we read about the 66% of the population dying before the end of the tribulation, at least. It's not because of his anger and his wrath so much, but he's trying, it is part of that, but it is to bring people to him. Trying to get the remnant to decide they want to follow him. And when he brings hard things into our life, again, it's not to destroy us, it's not to, to, to harm us, it's to bring us back into correction and back into relationship with him. The unfortunate side is so often we look at it as, God, why are you doing this to me? Well, we need to look at our life and say, is he just testing us to see if we believe it, or is he correcting us? And it's one of those two things. He's either correcting us, which is a good portion of the time because we need corrected. And other times it's just to test us and say, do you really believe? Do you really believe what you're, what you're being taught? When, when we teach God is our, is our refuge and our hiding place, and we start believing it, guess what? We're going to have hard times to see, am I going to hide in him? Is he going to be my defender and my refuge, or am I going to try to defend myself? When, I, when we start believing that we are to love one another, we're going to find people that are hard to love come into our life. When we're being taught to forgive one another, something's going to happen or something's going to be brought back to our memory that we need to forgive. And God's going to say, are you willing to forgive? Everything we learn is going to be tested to say, do you really believe it? Have you really learned this lesson? And it happens over and over again. And other times, it's uh, God saying, uh, you, you know, we're, we're just going to give you the spanking that you deserve for what you're doing wrong. You know, are you ready to repent? Either side. And, we need, and that's why when things happen to us, we need to first off and say, look and say, am I getting this because I deserve it? And usually that could be a yes if we're, if we're going to be careful in our life. That we almost always can have something in our life that we deserve punishment for. Or is this just a test to see whether I truly believe what, what I've been learning? And then we remember, all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. God is working good. He's not trying to make us feel miserable and bad. That is not what he wants. We're his children. And just like any of us would want our kids to be enjoying their family, God wants us to enjoy his family. And we're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us and care for us. Lord, we just ask that you help us when we're going through hard times to turn to you. If we need to repent, we turn to you. If we need to confess sins, we turn to you. Lord, if it's just a test to see if we truly believe, we ask that you help us to turn to you and keep following after you and for that. And we just ask that you help us to keep you the center of our life and keep idols completely out of our life. In your son's name, amen.